Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time. Our host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Well, welcome back everyone to the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. I'm Ryan Aris. I'm joined, as always, by Nathan Oblack and Dr. Joe Boot. And we're back with the second half of our interview with Dr. James White. So just by way of reminder, Dr. White's the director of Alpha and Omega Ministries, which is a Christian apologetics organization in Phoenix, Arizona. He's also an elder and a pastor at Apologia Church. Dr. White's the author of more than 20 books. He's a professor of Greek, systematic theology, and church history, as well as an accomplished debater. Most importantly, Dr. White's been married to his wife, Kelly, for more than 37 years. He has two children and four grandchildren. We're going to get right back into the second half of our conversation. Um, I was interested in what you were saying there. I think it's a point that's often overlooked um, with respect to the difference between what the church faced in way back in the pagan order and the secularization combined with... Um, technology and the, the the sort of emerging technocracy that we're that we're looking at you'll probably be well aware that one of the um one of the uh, a popular book over the last few years was called the benedict option and yes. um it was about sort of um cr- trying christians trying to create community a lot of the things that were said in there i thought were were helpful things that we've been doing for quite some time up here uh, christian schools planting christians establishing educational programs and so forth but I also felt that there was a weakness in it, which was the notion that we would be able to, in the way that the, uh, as emerged in the sort of early medieval period, uh, withdraw into yeah. isolated communities where we could just, you know, faithfully protect the uh, uh, the books and and copy them in the scriptorium quietly and think that we would uh, and be left alone. Um, and that seems to be one very new component. Uh, of all of this, we did a we did a podcast quite recently on on the Great Reset agenda, the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, um, and all of these technocrats with their transhumanist agenda and ideology. We kind of identified it as something of a of a Tower of Babel, really. Um, this sort of globalism that certainly American Christians, um, many of them guys like you, anyway, uh, are are trying to you know alert people to and are in a battle against where you know liberty is becoming irrelevant there's this sort of philosophy of you know it, it's the freedom of necessity now it's uh uh you know uh, liberty as we've known it is irrelevant in the planned technocratic society so right. as you've said you know we need we need a, a a remarkable and unusual wisdom to know really how to respond technology can start to be seen i'm reading a very interesting book right now um, by a, a a philosopher on technology, um, and technology itself can be seen almost as the enemy. I wonder if there are ways at this point where we need to um, sort of redirect Christians in their thinking about how we as believers uh, start to um, engage in the cultural mandate. I think in terms of the neglect of the mandate to rule and subdue, technology would be part of that. But it's like so many things, it's been co-opted by radical secularism, humanism, 
and Christians have been far too late to the game to talk about this. As you've said, it's not much good looking back now. You know, we are where we are. But in terms of going forward and thinking about the cultural mandate, have you got any thoughts on that? How we can think about education, how we can think about technology, how we can think about government, how we can think about these different areas as areas that we need to be engaged in. It's not enough for us to be back on our laurels talking about our own personal piety. Uh, You know, there's got to be more to it than that. It's interesting. You you made reference to Rod Dreher's book, uh, The Benedict Option, and then, of course, he did a a more recent book uh, just a few months ago, uh, uh, Live Live Not By Lies, which is a quotation from Alexander Solzhenitsyn just before he was deported from the Soviet Union. That's a a phrase I think is extremely useful to, to us and might be part of the best answer that I can give to you there. Um, because secularism is based upon a lie, it, 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 it's, 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 its heart is the denial of the creator. And, and everything that has beauty and meaning has it because it's been created to be that way. That, that this is the whole Christian worldview. And so we as believers must put down a, a, an absolute stake in the ground, a foundation that we will not live according to lies. Mm-hmm. We are being asked to live according to lies. And right now, in both of our countries, you can be punished if you don't live according to lies. What do I refer to? Well, for example, uh, a friend of mine on uh, social media yesterday uh, posted a statement that said, um, Rachel Levine is a man. This is our there are four lights moment. Now, only Star Trek people get the last part of that particular reference. But it's you're in good company on that front here. Where Captain Picard was captured by aliens. Well, everyone's an alien in Star Trek, but um, and was being tortured, and was they were trying to force him to see five lights when there are only four lights. And the whole idea was to break down a person's commitment to truth. And Doug Wilson gave a quote, and I I don't think I can get it up fast enough, but Doug Wilson gave a a quote uh, in a recent uh, blog article that he did where uh, from uh, Dalrymple, where Dalrymple uh, basically said, that the Soviet propaganda was not intended to convince or to inform, but to humiliate Mm -hmm. by forcing people to constantly lie. You break down their probity, you break down their humanity and you humiliate them. And an emasculated people is an easy people to rule and to control. And I thought that was one of the most insightful things that I had, I had read in a very, very long time. And that's what we're facing. When the Equality Act is passed here in the United States sometime over the next number of months, we will be saying to the citizens of the United States, that when you see uh, Rachel 
Levine, who is actually Richard Levine, and everybody knows it's Richard Levine, my five-year-old granddaughter could simply look at a picture and go, that's a guy. We know the reality here. Or see the guy down in Australia who's six foot two, 220 pounds, and wants to play Australian rules football with the girls or the rug- rugby league with the girls. Mm. And they can't even stop him. They're, they're, he's 75 pounds heavier and, and eight inches taller, and they can't stop him. But he's a girl, so he gets to do it. That's a lie. That's living by lies. And we as believers say that we follow him who is the truth. We can't live according to lies. Mm-hmm. We can't go there. And that will cost us. And I take that back to if in the first the end of the first century, a Christian takes a pinch of incense and throws it on the altar and says, Kaiser Kudios, Caesar is Lord. That's a lie. Mm-hmm. That's a lie for that Christian. It's not Caesar is Lord, it's Jesus is Lord. And so the issue really, as I see it, is how do we prepare people to live in such a way that we don't fall back into the days of Pravda? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, we all remember Pravda, right? We heard about Pravda all the time. Pravda was the, the, the official Soviet news outlet. But what does Pravda mean? Pravda is the Russian word truth. Mm-hmm. And every Russian knew that if it was written in Pravda, it was not Pravda. And yeah. that's where we're going. That's what we're, we're in Canada, in the United States, in Europe, in the United Kingdom, doesn't matter. Where we're, what we're moving toward is living according to lies. And we have to find the clear, most compelling spirit driven way of being a constant reminder and that's the problem if you're a constant reminder that means you're a constant annoyance and that means you're going to be dealt with you're going to be trying they're going to try to silence you put you away put you in prison do whatever they can but that's what we're called to be i don't understand what else is salt and light mm-hmm. what yeah. else is salt and light and if and if we are called to be salt and light in the midst of lies that means we have to be the ones who will tell the truth, no matter what it costs. And it will be very, very costly. But we also, I think, just in passing, have to be careful. We, there is a way to speak the truth in love. And there is a way to speak the truth effectively to people who have been fundamentally robbed of their humanity by secularism. In other words, I don't see the fundamentalist street screecher banging somebody over the head with a sign that says Jesus saves is the effective way to not live according to lies. Mm-hmm. If you're dealing with people whose fundamental worldview has been warped by attempting to put something at the center that cannot bear the strain of being the center of their worldview, then we especially, who are presuppositionalists, need to be explained to everybody how that presuppositionalism can then inform the very mechanism by which we speak so as to bring maximum pressure upon that central aspect of their thinking that cannot hold under that pressure yeah. to make it break. Yeah. So they are then left with nothing at the center. Instead, they have to look to the only one who can be the center, 
be the only one who can hold all knowledge together, and that's not you and me. Mm. Uh, that's the creator who made us. We have to we have to really hang on to that. I think in a a a, a profoundly committed way in Canada right now, uh, James. We are facing a situation where Bill C six, which is about to be passed this month, this month, Bill C six will actually uh, amends the criminal code and will make counsel to somebody to affirm their gender birth or normative biblical human sexuality, a criminal offense punishable by up to five years in prison. Um, and so talk about you know being forced to, uh, to, to live by lies. They're trying to put the weight of the criminal code now in Canada. We've been where you are right now with the emergence of Equalities Acts. That was some years ago. Now they're trying to put the force of the criminal code behind it. One of the things when I'm reflecting on this, and you've mentioned the presuppositional framework a couple of times, is that no matter how hard man tries to to force his lie upon God's world, the the structure of creation does not bend to service man. God's God's ordering, God's law, God's structure will not bend to service man's lie. And so eventually, you know, who was the, who was the liar? The father of lies. He was a liar from the beginning. Um, and he's and Jesus said, you know, he's been telling lies. He's the father of lies. He's, he's been telling lies from the beginning. Now he wants our culture to join in with the lie. That, that kind of what you've said really manifests the diabolic, satanic character of all of this. I take some solace in the fact that not only can God's order not be broken, but eventually that that order breaks us in the lie. I mean, if you, for example, promote abortion and you redefine human sexuality in the family and you have what we have in Canada, which is euthanasia as well, and you are basically creating a culture of death, that culture is on life support already. In some respects, our culture is in its death throes. And if we can be faithful, as you say, put that stake in the ground, speak in crystal clear terms against the lie and live in terms of the truth, uh, we win. Yep. Yeah, that's really, if anyone hears these, this recording, many years down the road, maybe even after you and I are gone, mm. I want to communicate to people the reality that the culture of death, secularism, cannot create a human society that will last. Mm-hmm. Because you're living in God's world. And as long as you live as a rebel in God's world, you will not flourish. What you build will not last. You can't even build it. That's the whole thing, what critical theory is. It, it breaks everything down. It can't build anything up. Yep. If you want to build something in the future, we know how to do it. Because we know the one... Who created all things and so it doesn't matter how long the darkness may last we may not be around like i said when victory comes but victory will come why because we're made in the image of god yeah. and secularism and all of its soul destroying rottenness cannot cause human flourishing and so yes uh can could technology extend the time period during which the lie is believed? Could technology be a, uh, a life support system for a dying uh, culture? Yes. For a time. Yeah. For how long? I don't know. Mm-hmm. But what I'm certain of is I, I'm as certain of this 
as, as anything else, that kind of culture cannot last in light of the light that comes from the empty tomb. Amen. So as long as that tomb is empty, no culture that, that, that refuses to acknowledge the one who rose from that tomb can possibly last. It yeah. will fall apart. Great. It will fall apart. And this is just switching gears a little bit. Uh, but I'd like to get your take on this, Dr. White. It's just something I've been thinking of. Actually, I haven't got Joe's opinion on this either, but thinking you, about You've been sitting so patiently over yeah, there, Nate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So thanks. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, thinking of the historical freedoms of the church, um, several pastors here in Canada, uh, really right across the country, have continued to hold services since lockdown orders were handed down. Uh, in many cases, limiting church gatherings to a maximum of 10 people. Um, and so because of this, they're accused of selfishness and many other things, but there's a significant amount of the public that thinks these churches, uh, should have their tax exempt status removed. Um, I wonder how you'd respond to that. Well, I I forget how many years ago it was. I was on a fairly well-known webcast and I was asked to give some ideas about what was coming. And one of the things I, I said was, uh, I hope you've enjoyed that tax exempt status, but it's going to go away. Um, Here, one of the founding fathers of the United States said that the power to tax is the power to destroy. And obviously, I I would expect in a fairly short period of time that any church that will not bow to the demands of the cultural and sexual revolution, especially in regards to marriage, sexuality, quote unquote transgenderism all those things, um, that they will be, uh, they will have that privilege removed from them and then probably end up being taxed horrifically, which basically means that possession of all sorts of physical objects is going to become a difficult thing, I think, in the future for the church because it's a target. They know where to find it. They know how to get it. And, and so unless there is a restraining of this stuff, I've seen that coming for a very, very long time. Um, Christian schools, oh my. Uh, I, I could see within the current regime, the next four years of the regime that has just taken power in the United States, notice the terminology I use there, mm-hmm. um, that uh, I could see this regime utilizing the full power of the federal government to absolutely force the celebration of homosexual marriage, homosexuality, polyamory, transgenderism, everything in any school that would receive any federal funding whatsoever, which includes what are called Pell Grants and things like that, Mm. uh, as well as the removal of any type of governmentally uh, assigned accreditation for any school that would not go along with that. Uh, I fully expect that. And to be perfectly honest with you, that would probably be one of the best things that's ever happened to education amongst, amongst Christian people. Uh, because right now we're actually still thinking that you should send somebody off to Princeton to get a theological education. Hello, <laughs> um, wake up. Uh, things have changed a lot, uh, in the past uh, number of decades. So I, I see a lot of that stuff happening. And, and again, it's, it, you, you've probably seen the hashtag on, on Twitter, Christ or chaos. Um, we're doing the chaos thing really well right now. And we're the ones that 
it's one thing to put a nice nice hashtag out. And it's true. It, it is true. Christ or chaos. But how many of our people are actually ready to explain why? Mm-hmm. What does that mean? How, how is Christ the antidote to chaos? You have to have a real meaningful theology of who Jesus is for that to make any sense. Right. The idea of the, the Jesus of most um, seeker-sensitive evangelical churches being the, the antidote to chaos doesn't make any sense. They, they don't know. Most Christians could not explain to you how what you believe about Jesus is relevant to your epistemology if you put a gun to their head. But that has to be a basic part of not only uh, higher education, external education, but that has to be something that's a regular part of the preaching of the church. And I, I can say it, apologia, it is. Yeah, I, I mean, that's something that is, is addressed from the pulpit uh, on a regular mm-hmm. basis because our people need to understand who Jesus really is and how he is the answer to the chaos of the secular world and all of its competing philosophies. Yeah, I think on the whole uh, uh, church taxation side too, part of it, uh, Nathan, is that the church had immunity from taxation as God's embassy, but that got changed in the modern era to tax-exempt charitable status, which was our first mistake, letting that go. But the the, the power to tax is definitely the power to destroy, and it's a a claim to ownership, and and therefore it, it really can... It, it will be a tool. It's going to be wielded. It's the first thing that the lawyers here are really anticipating is the threat to the status of Christian organizations, churches, charities with the passage of this law. One, um, I think, before uh, Ryan wraps this up, um, Dr. White, one one last question, which is um, may sound a little left of field, but I know that this is one of your um, one of the things that you've uh, studied and, and you've uh, debated and commented on in the past. Um, and that's one, especially in a country like Britain, is a factor in all of this going forward, and perhaps in the United States too. Um, and that's the wild card of Islam. And so without opening up a whole new can of worms um, and, and another hour of podcast here, can you in sort of in a, in a, in a couple of minutes say what what kind of role may or may not Islam play um, a kind of resurgent Islam, about 6 million Muslims right now in Britain, that's a tenth of the population, um, in the wake, because they often lie quiet, you know, they're very quiet on these things that are going on right now, they act as though, that, that you know, as though they're almost not there. They don't agree with all of this radical LGBTQ agenda, of course, um, and for the most part, they're an anti-secularizing force. There are some, as you know, uh, um, well, they would call themselves reformers, um, within within the movement that are trying to push in a secularizing direction, but but that's not where the the strength is. It's not the re- where the recruitment is happening in British prisons. It's not the it's not that secularizing end. What kind of a role may uh, you you know as a historian, Islam has been used of the Lord at different points in in areas of judgment, um, uh, and historically there's been an interaction there between Christianity and Islam. Um, what what kind of a role may or may not uh, Islam potentially play in the West in the midst of this sort of unfolding of things? Because it's almost as though the church is facing the perfect storm of, on the one hand, radical secularism on this side, and then Isla- Islam on this side. Church is caught in a pincer movement. It's almost like the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Those two, the left and Islam, has worked together, almost hand in glove at times. Um 
And uh, But now it's getting to the point where with legislation coming in, some Islamic ideas under the secular order um, could be deemed uh, criminal. Um, yes. So what do you see? What, what potentially do you see as the wild card there? What might happen there? Speculate for us. Well, and it is speculation because, for example, you know that Macron in France, um, their move to ban homeschooling yes. is primarily aimed at Islamic radicalization but it'll be applied to Christians as well. And so you have that kind of thing going on there. And I, I'll, I'll admit, you know, I, I know more Muslims than most Christians know Muslims that don't live in Muslim countries, let's put it that way. And so I have been very interested over the past 15 years or so, when I really, I, I started really getting into, I, I had my first serious debate with a Muslim in 2006. So it's been about 15, coming up on 15 years. Uh, I have been sort of taken aback, to be honest with you, by the fact that though the Quran, for example, is extremely clear in its denunciation of homosexuality, yet I don't, I don't see a lot of Muslims who have a, for example, I've never heard a Muslim talking about the Muslim worldview no. or even the Quranic worldview. Mm. I don't, I don't hear, hear them thinking mm. in that fashion. I don't hear them thinking presuppositionally. Those who do even use that term are doing it more along the lines of what, our fundamentalists, uh, the Wahhabi Muslims, people like the Salafis, Wahhabis, uh, in more of a very surface level type thing, rather than really understanding issues relating to worldview and then making application from an Islamic perspective. And I've always found this very odd, and I've, I've tried to engage a couple of my Islamic friends who are, they do dawah, they do speaking and things like that, and, and basically saying, so what is, what's the view in your communities about what's happening in our society in regards to gay marriage and, and things like this, because we know what happens in places like Pakistan or Afghanistan or, or even Saudi Arabia, but that's even in Saudi Arabia, that is changing. There, there are strange things happening in the Middle East in a secularizing yeah. of the, the Saudi kingdom and things like that. And so I think there's a level of confusion in the global Islamic community right now. That's A. B, what's interesting to me is most Christians have read no more of the Quran than Muslims have read the Bible. But the author of the Quran assumed that anyone who reads the Quran already knew the Bible. So all the biblical stories, the assumption is you, you already know what that background is. So if you read the Quran, but you don't know what the Bible is talking about, you have no idea what it's talking about in those passages anyways. And the Quran is only about half the length of the New Testament. So if all you have is the Quran and the sermons you get on Fridays, that is not enough to deal with the modern challenges of the secular worldview at all. Nope. And so I don't hear them having the same conversations that we are having right now. And I don't see that they have the foundation to be able to have the conversations that we're having right now. And so I've said for, for years, you know, there were a number of videos that came out a number of years ago talking about how many children Muslims have 
and hope, so this is how the Muslims are going to take over the UK is because they have they're having six children and the average of Englishmen's having one point two or something like that. And then you just do run the numbers, and yeah, pretty pretty soon it's all over with. Here's the problem: I listen to Muslims talking to Muslims. I will listen to podcasts and things like that where Muslims are talking to Muslims rather than thinking the Christians are going to be listening to this at all. And what you need to realize is the first generation Muslims may have six children. The second generation will have three. And by the third generation, they're having the same number as the Brits are. Yep. And the Muslims are saying to the Muslims, we're losing our young people. They're becoming secularized. But they don't know what to do about it. They don't know how to address it. Because they, the, the, the Quran and the Hadith simply don't have the depth and the, the amount of truth in them to actually be able to provide a meaningful worldview response. They, just, they can't do what you're doing at the Runner Academy and things like that. They can't, they just, it's just not there. And so Islam is facing an incredible challenge. Even though it's growing in the sense of just natural numbers, it's fracturing internally. Mm-hmm. And there are tremendous pressures there. Tremendous pressures that frequently result in violence and killing and the, the sectarian stuff that we see in the Middle East. It, it's, it's a regular thing. But on a global scale, uh, there are a lot of Muslims that are extremely concerned about the direction that global Islam is headed. And what would a secularized global Islam look like? Mm-hmm. Would it even be able to survive is the question. Mm-hmm. So I find that really fascinating and obviously you've got all the politics in saudi yep. arabia and yemen and all the rest of that stuff that's extremely complicated um, and all the money involved and everything else but as far as as the the worldview issues goes i've just been amazed at at how many times i've approached a muslim who was, was willing to go for hours on the subject of uh, let's say the resurrection of jesus and the crucifixion and stuff like that an apologetic mm-hmm. issue and yet you start pushing on worldview stuff, cultural stuff, nothing there. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say actually, it's interesting because the, in a, in a certain sense, Islam to 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 grow at all, to develop at all. You mentioned that it presupposes a um, that the reader has a background in 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 scripture when you're reading the Quran. Islam has functioned almost as an, a sort of late Aryan cult, as a parasite on Christianity, and as and as in a certain sense been able to. Uh, exist um, as it sort of absorbed or has dwelt with and among Christians and its whole apologetic has always been focused on, I mean, the Quran, as you know, um, you know better than I do, uh, is is built around that steadily an anti-Christian apologetic and anti-Trinitarian apologetic. So they're keen there. But how would it uh, survive sort of feeding off secularism uh how can it be a parasite on a secularized pagan worldview it's never there was a reason that it emerged and developed as it did within the christian era um which is a very very interesting point you made me think about something completely new there um uh i'm gonna develop that uh that that line of thought well thank you for being with us we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the ezra institute Visit www.ezrainstitute.ca to find out more about the Runner Academy, about the other programs and plenty of resources that are available there. Check out aomin.org, that's Dr. White's website. 
where you can find, again, loads of apologetics resources, materials to help deepen your understanding of the Christian faith and the defense of it. Dr. White, we're glad to have had you with us. We'll uh, see you again soon. It's passed down as a prophecy Every year about this time down as a prophecy every year about this time